I'd like you to open your Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And I'd like to look at the 14th verse. This was originally going to be the message, just the 14th verse because of what it says. Let me read that. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. But let me go on. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane, irreverent person such as Esau, who for one morsel of bread sold his birthright. I've added those couple verses to verse 14. I've titled the message today, it's in the form of a question, shall many be defiled? I'd like to think there wouldn't be. I'd like to think that it's, well, when God saved us, he does everything for us and we don't have to do anything. I'd like to think of it that way, then that way I'm not responsible for what I do or don't do. But the fact of the matter is, that verse in there in verse 15, that we not fail the grace of God. Failure is not a kind word. Failure is not a, a comfortable word. Failure means you didn't reach what you reached for. You didn't get it. You drew back for a thousand reasons and two thousand excuses. You didn't make it. And you failed. We hate the word because it identifies us. Nobody wants to be a failure. But it's easy to fail in this life. You know, when God supplies grace, it means that God does something from heaven's side without which his work couldn't be done. If God does not initiate something in your life, then the something that he wants in your life cannot happen. God has to cause it. It's grace. Grace is favor. You think of this this morning, that God has singled you out, all of you has singled you out in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done. He has singled you out for favor. And you think, well, I'm not deserving of favor. Well, that's true. None of us are. But the very fact that from the foundation of the world, he chose us and has a plan for us and wants to save us, and only he can supply the information of how to do that, and the fact that he does it for you. And for me, it's the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that save what is very real now, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind as a bat, but now I can see. How wonderful it is that God has chosen us to be his people. And the way through life, while he doesn't make it work, he simply gives us all the things and all the tools and the information and all the assistance that any of us need to make it. All we have to do is respond. Our word for respond is called faithfulness. All we have to do is be faithful to just do what he said. Respond to his information. Go back to verse 14. He said we are to live at peace. Follow peace, he said, with all men. How many of you know that's not easy to do? 
There are some people you couldn't live at peace with. You could not. As a Christian, there are people you could not live at peace with. Muslims, for example. Because their whole design of their doctrine is that you are to be eliminated. You couldn't live at peace with them. But Romans 12, I think Romans 12 and verse 18 says that as much as lieth in you is possible, live at peace with all men. It means you try. I don't want to grow up and be confrontational, bad act in society. I don't want people to fear me and think I'm mean, I'm bad to the bone. I don't want anybody thinking me like that. A lot of young boys do. They like to think that that's the epitome of life, to be tough, to make people afraid of you. And yet the toughest kids you ever saw wouldn't set foot in church because they're afraid of God. They are. But being tough and mean and able to hurt and harm people, that's no goal. There's nothing to that. But you're around that, so you have to learn that a soft answer does what? Turns away wrath. I don't want to fight. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to argue and be confrontational. I will defend what I believe. I'm required to. I'm to earnestly contend for the faith. I'm not going to make it an abusive thing either. I want to live at peace. I want to be able to get along with whoever my neighbor is. I want my neighbor to get along with me. And if there's things that they don't like, I'll try not to do it. Because I think peace is a lofty goal. God uses it in significant places in the Bible. It's not here to talk about this morning about peace, but it's a Bible word that Christians ought to embrace. But the next thing he said in verse 14, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, that is one of those statements in the Bible that everybody, I don't care who you are, where you're from, who your mother, your daddy, or anything about it, you've got to deal with that because there's no exception to that. There's no way around that. Without holiness, you will never see the Lord. You can be religious. You can go to church. You can pride yourself in all the achievements in life and all the things you've done and all your goodness and how good a person you surely must be. But without holiness, whatever that means... You'll never see God. When life is over, you just, you missed it. You treasured other things more than pleasing God. You put other things before holiness. You accepted yourself from having to live such a life that, whew. That's why a lot of people don't want to hear the gospel, don't want to be taught, because it, there's so much that God wants from us. As though God has no rights to our life. But let me tell you something. The moment as a Christian you surrender to God what he has a right to you in, to your life. When he has his rights to your life, everything will start to fall in place. When you surrender and you say, as the song says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. When you consciously make that decision, things will begin to fall in place. If you don't make that decision, you will struggle the rest of your natural life with Christianity. How about that? A man can never be holy until he surrenders, or a woman. We can't be holy unless there's a surrender. 
a conscious surrender. We may not do it all at once with everything, but as we go along the way, as God leads us and teaches us, there must be this surrender to God. When there's a confrontation between you and God, remember, he never loses. And you're only having a confrontation because God who loves you must either change you or judge you. That's 1 Corinthians 11. So he brings you to him. Challenges all your freedoms as things he has to judge. Give it up. Put it on the cross. Come to me. Live on my terms, which is what holiness is. But our word for holiness here, there's more than one word for holiness. This particular word has to do more with being sanctified or sanctification. You know, there's a lot of theological debates through the centuries over the meaning of words. Sanctification, when it happens, how it happens, when you get saved, are you sanctified, or do you have to grow up into sanctification? Well, actually, both are true. But the word sanctification and holiness run together. To be holy is to live on God's terms. To live as he wants you to live. That's just as simple as that. To do the things he wants you to do, and, and it takes faith. you got to believe. Sanctify means to separate. God chose you out of the world as being a part of the world, brought you to himself. That's where the holy connection takes place. Anything God is attached to is holy. It may not look holy. It may not sound holy, but it's his and it's holy. And he takes that which is his and he begins to cleanse it. But he has to separate it from the world. And this separation is called sanctification. You are brought to God from the world in order to serve him and to fulfill his purposes on this earth. And the separation from the world is the hard part of life because we've lived in this world. We've known this world. We've enjoyed and lusted after and participated in the world and all the fun and the stupidity in it. And one day we realize as a Christian, we can't do that anymore. You know, a guy said to one of you all one time here, one of you in here, David, tell me about a friend of yours, that the reason he couldn't come to Christ, he just couldn't give up his beer. What about waking up in the night thinking about that? Of course, the sermon goes to bed with you, and you wake up in the night, and you think, what would you say to that? I would have said, now that I think about it, how many years later, I would have said, you don't have to give up your beer. I'm not asking you to give up anything. All I'm asking you to do is to give your heart to Christ. Recognize your sinfulness before him and how you've lived and just ask God to forgive you. Your beer buds in the refrigerator. When you get home, he didn't say you got to throw your bud away. He's in there and you get home from church, go drink one. Come Wednesday night, you're thirsty after church. Mr. Dummer, Bud Dummer is right there in the door and you just, Budweiser, I mean, and you get him out and you take, and, you know, just enjoy the Lord. You know what's wrong with that? What happens? You keep getting taught and what happens? We talked about it last week, I think a word called conviction. Conscience, nobody said a word to you. Nobody said a word to you. The guy that worked in the distillery, nobody told him he couldn't do that. He just said, just come to Christ. God takes care of all that stuff as you walk the walk. One day you realize, I can't drink that no more. 
Why? The Bible doesn't say it's back in the concordance under B. There's nothing in there about beer. And I looked under the T's where the thou shalt nots, and there's nothing in there about that. Under A, there's nothing about ale. A-L-E. No restrictions. Are you still drinking? No. Why not? Man, I can't do it no more. Why? Bible doesn't say you can't. My heart smites me or been smitten. I just don't think it's right. I don't have to have a verse of scripture tell me that it's not right. I'm convicted that I shouldn't do that. It's not a good testimony. So I quit doing all of that. How many of you know it works like that? How many times does somebody want to come to the Lord and feel like they can't come to the Lord because of all these shall nots and can't nots and do nots? Just overwhelm people. Jesus just said, come to me. Come as you are. I'll take you, smelly thing. You come on. I'll take you. I'll drug you out of the miry clay. Didn't he do that, Isaac? He drug him out of the miry clay. All of us. Nasty thing. And he brought us to him. And he says, now you are sanctified because you are mine. I am? Yep. Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you like this. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me show you something. I'm trying to get to my other message, the main message. But he said in 2 Thessalonians 2, I want to save you. Verse 13, God hath from the beginning. Now, if you believe in election or predestination and all that, then this verse is for you. And if you don't believe it, it's for you anyway. All right. He said, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now, is it not true that you did not choose him, but that he chose you? Isn't that true? Now, think of that. That's grace. What did you do to get chose? Chosen. What masterful act or accomplishment did you undertake or do that caused God to say, oh, I got to have him? You did nothing. Then why the choice? Why did God choose you? I guess because he wanted to. Because it pleased God from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, to choose those whom he's going to save. And he brought you to himself in time when you were born. Time came in your life. Certain circumstances that God brought about in your life came to pass. And that day your heart was broken and God called you out of that darkness you were in. Dirty as you are, filthy and unclean as you were, he brought you to him and forgave you all your sins. Now, you can't forget them all, but God's willing to. But the effect of all your sins will keep you from serving God. So God starts dealing with your sins. How's he do that? Well, God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation two distinct and specific ways. He has chosen you to salvation. First is the sanctification of the Spirit. That would be the work of His Spirit in informing you, convicting you, enlightening you, showing you. What other word can we think of? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in giving you the kind of information that changes your life, that brings conviction. Some things we hear go in one ear and right out the other. Some things we hear are a deep challenge. 
boom, into your heart. The person beside you didn't have any effect at all, but it did you. I believe that God has something for everybody in here this morning. A word that touches you might not touch you, but a word that touches you uh, might not touch them. But God has a word for everybody because that's the way he works. He sends his word, and the Holy Spirit knows our needs. He locates us, and he causes a word like a hammer or like fire. Bam! It goes in a heart. You're trying to uh, explain away uh, excuse yourself, but you can't. Now you got a burden. Now something's hanging in there. And you've got to deal with it or get out of here. Get away from it or deal with it. Get away from it and die or deal with it and go on. And boy, the dread of, man, I'm already losing my friends. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He never leaves you alone. Constantly hammering on your headpiece. Uh, Your mind, I'm sorry. Constantly hanging and dealing with your mind. Showing you things about your life you know are wrong, but he wants you to have it now as a conviction. Now you can't enjoy that anymore. Can't even enjoy going to the refrigerator and getting Mr. Dumber out of there to drink him. Why? (laughs) Something in my heart uh, makes me feel bad. Could it be God? Could it be the Lord making for you a distinction between what you can do and now what you can't do or what you're doing, what you shouldn't do? Is that not the work of the Spirit? Does not God give to the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? Is it not the Spirit who opens the eyes of our heart so that we begin to see what we had never seen before? Isn't it? And the Spirit of God begins to take words. That's what he does. He shall show you. He shall illumine you. You come, your heart's right, he'll begin to talk to you. You'll leave here with something that you didn't have when you got here, some conviction or concern. Your conscience will bear witness to something that God said, even if you're lost. That's how much God loves us. See, if he leaves us alone and we stay as we are, he judges us, righteously judges us. You were there, I told you, you didn't want to do it. This is what you get. But he doesn't let you get by. He deals with us. This is that sanctifying work. That separation from everything that God has to judge, the Spirit of God begins to separate you from it. That old pestle of friends you used to have, you know, they were a lot of fun. I had mine. I grew up with mine. Had a lot of what I call fun. It was all ignorant, but all of that. And then one day you realize there is no redeeming value in what we do here and what we're talking about. And I had to come apart. And I think the Bible still teaches. I'm relatively positively sure this morning that the Bible still says, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. And if you will, God says, I will be to you what you need more than anything else in this life, a father. An all-knowing, caring, all-powerful father. 
and I'll take care of you and I'll lead you and guide you and nobody will pluck you out of my hand. You just live on my terms. You sanctify us and separate us from it. And you know the second thing he said in Second Thessalonians? He said through sanctification of the spirit and what? Belief of the truth. Let me ask you all a question. I know you're going to answer this right. But I just want to locate you and let your heart locate you. Do you believe that the word of God is the only right way in life? Is that not what the Holy Spirit gives us to believe? And if anything else doesn't agree with it, we reject it because we cannot but believe the word of God. Now, believing or having faith in God's word and living, or that's what the word believe means, acting like it's true, living like it's true, is what being faithful is. We're not faithful if we're not believing. How could he say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if we're not doers of the word and not instead of hearers? Oh, it's a narrow life. It is. Trust me. I know that. But to be sanctified and set apart is to live holy. And the truth is, this is the only way that we will be able to see God. Because that's what the Bible says. There's no verse that can overrule that. He said, this is the way you do it. Now go to the next verse, verse 15. So here's what you do with it. You look diligently. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Looking diligently simply means to pay attention, to give reflection to, think about. Be attentive. That's what diligence means. Nobody can do this for you. You have to do this yourself. And he said, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Grace is a bigger subject than we're able to handle this morning as a message. Because it's all about what God does for those who don't deserve it. It's mercy. It's God doing for me what I did not and could not deserve. And without him doing it, I could never make it. That's what grace is. Grace, the power of grace is in the love that gives it. And love is over our heads too this morning. But when it comes to grace, realize this, that the grace of God that brings salvation, Titus said, has appeared to all men. But God who makes these choices and brings us out of this whatever we're in, knows that a lot of people who hear the message of salvation will put it aside. I'm not ready for that, they say, or something like that. I don't know if I can live that way. There's too many things in my life I don't think I can give up. They usually say that. I just don't think I can give up this or give up that. I can't give up the woman I'm living with or the girlfriend I have that we live together. I can't give all that up for God. I tell you what, God is able to get you out of all that. I wouldn't want you to sit in here living that way. I'd have a problem with it. But I know God can get you out of it. I know he can. Because it works like a needle. It's like a double-edged sword. 
Boy, you listen to it. If you're listening, now a lot of people listen to the word and it goes in one ear and out the other. They don't hear it. But when you hear it, it's like a sword. And it goes in there and it begins to deal with you this way and that way. Well, the coming of this word and all of this dividing and cutting and conviction, all of that's grace. That's what God's doing. God's getting your attention. He doesn't have to. There's no rule that he has to do that. He doesn't have to save us. He does because he wants to, and this is the way he does it. He said that he has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's grace in action. This is the way it works. You could not believe if God did not give you faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. And only the Holy Spirit can magnify the Word to where you go, oh, that's the work of God. It's grace. But a lot of people that hear it didn't get convicted about it. And they set aside that moment, that time that God's talking to you and dealing with your life. And you begin to draw back a little bit and you do what Galatians 2, 21 says, you frustrate the grace of God. See, you let it happen and here it comes. And you draw back and you begin to, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Mm. When you begin to back off and back away, and we often say, well, I don't think I'm ready yet. I've got too many, my life's too complicated. I am convinced I can't live it right now. So God thinks you are. He wouldn't have called you if he didn't. But you back away from it. Now, the chances of you ever having that conviction ever again are not guaranteed. You might live the rest of your life waiting on tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes in the awful awakening on the day of your death. There you are facing doom and disaster. Not because you didn't have a chance. Not because God never spoke to you. He did. But you didn't want it. You just didn't want that to be your life. Didn't want to pay the price to live that way. Didn't want to give up all the stuff I thought I had to give up. And so in verse 15, he goes on to say, lest any root of bitterness trouble you or springing up and trouble you. And thereby many be defiled. Defiled is, is a way of talking about being unholy, unsanctified. You're defiled, unclean. It's like being rejected. You're a nice person, you're a wonderful person, big giver, and wonderful singer, maybe a good preacher. But you lived on your terms, not his. Defiling is a process. It starts with a decision. I don't know if I'm ready. Well, you know, I, and so you start leaning back a little bit. And the more you lean back, because I've watched this through the years, the more people hold back and draw back, the more comfortable they get in what they draw back to, and they never go forward. I understand that. I don't know why people do that. I've had people years ago say, you know, I need to move away from here. There's nothing where I am. There's nothing. And we're, we're sitting here dying, making a lot of money dying. Oh, we're getting rich, but we're dying. When we get done, we're going to have a full bank account when death comes and we have nothing to commend us to God. I've got to move. I need to move. Or they need to move, and then they start making money. 30 years later, 20 years later, they have little interest in the deeper things of God now. You're older. Your kids are grown. You got a little money. You can take it easy now and back up a little bit. It's not good. 
I don't mean you can't have some relaxation. I think God invented porches for people to sit on. (laughs) But I just know that when God speaks to us, when God is talking to us, one of the most unhealthy things we can do is put it off, set it aside. This is like right now. He's talking to some of you right now about things I haven't even said. You got to deal with it. You don't have to run up here squalling and bawling. That's okay if you do. We'll get out of the way and give you some room. But between now and heaven, you're going to have to deal with all this stuff. Why would God speak all these things to you if he didn't want you to live this way? But see, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Now, this word, root of bitterness, this is a quote here in verse 15. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 29, which we'll look at in just a minute. And it has to do more with wholesale rejection of the word, maybe inspired by some in the church who talked others out of it, and their lives were bitter lives in the eyes of God. God saw them as bitter people, not good. And they were rejects. Or the word root of bitterness, as I want to use it this morning, is personal. Take the word, first of all, the word root. All of us know what a root is. A root is under the ground, hidden from view, which brings the life that's in the soil to the plant that it displays. The flower, the plant, the stalk, whatever it is, is a product of the power of the root, which brings it forth. Sometimes roots are like weeds. They're noxious things. Like the word bitterness is often used to identify poisons or noxious things, things that are bad. But a root is what underlies hidden things in our lives and supplies our problems. I was in front of my house the other day looking. I do not, I absolutely do not like to fool with flower beds. All right, amen to you too. You're welcome. But I was weed whacked in front of the yard there by the sidewalk. And there by my steps was, I don't know what that grass is. It just grows sideways. It's very ugly. Is that crabgrass? I'm going to call it crabgrass. If it's not, just, just excuse my ignorance, okay? And I looked back and I thought, now, you know, you're, a, you're an eyesore. I don't like to fool with you, but I am going to fool with you. So I got down on my knees there. And I grabbed that, you know, you water around there and you get, and I knew this, you got to get the root out because if you don't get the root out, it's going, ha, 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 I'll be back. (laughs) So I'd kind of yank on it and yank on it and finally I got that big brood out of the thing. (laughs) Threw it out in the yard. How many of you know that's the end of that plant? It's dead. It won't hurt. And there's nothing more it can do to express its ugly self. You got the root out. Then there was that one beside it, I was yanking around on it and jerked the top off of it. It just had a water, ugly grass. So I threw it out in the yard, but my, I knew this. That root's still in the ground. That thing will be here next chance it gets. Because you see, you can have all these repentant moments in your life you want to. You can feel bad the rest of your life about what you said yesterday, what you did last night. 
You can get your best friend, I'm telling you, I am so sorry. Oh, I don't know why I do that. I'm you say all that you want to. If you don't get the root that fostered that thing out of your life, it'll come back. Just like the Christian life. If you want to live the Christian life, you've got to be rooted and grounded in the Lord. Roots are what go down into the soil to get all the nutrition it needs to produce the product that comes from the root, the flower, the weed. Psalm 1. Remember what Psalm 1 said? Blessed is a man that does not do three things, walk and sit and stand. The Bible says his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the root in his life. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And verse 3 said, he shall be like. He shall be like. God said, a man like that will be like this. He's like a tree that's planted by a river. Water. Water is life. That extends its roots. It doesn't say roots in Psalm 1, but that's the, that's the implication. It extends its roots down to the water, constantly supplying that tree with life. That's what we need. But there are roots in people's lives that are bitter. See, bitter has to do with the poison. Something noxious in your life. Something that triggers reactions and, and ugly responses from you. Like, for example, a person who is hateful disagreeable, hard to get along with, opinionated. But that, that type of a person has a problem. You're not just like that. You got a problem. Sometimes we have a root of bitterness and we're bitter about life and about events in life because of experiences that we had. A child that was raised by an abusive father. A father who beat and smacked, was not nice or kind, made you feel less than human, called you names, belittled you. You will either grow up and just get that thing out of your life, or as you grow up, any man you ever run into, if you're a woman, it could be a boy too. But mostly if a girl, she sees a, a, a man or a boy that acts anything like what her father acts, what does she do? She recalls. That root begins to say, look at that. You know what? All men are probably like that. That guy's a real jerk. Just like your daddy was or your uncle, whoever it was you have this bitterness about. I wouldn't give you, I wouldn't. I'll tell you one thing about him. Then you start looking for faults and criticisms. He bitter. Somebody hurt you. Somebody did you wrong. Maybe you were abused, sexually abused as a child. Maybe it was an uncle. Maybe it was a cousin or brother or grandfather. I've heard stories that are hard to believe about children that were taken advantage of by members of the family. It scarred you, left you with a scar. There's a wound in your heart and in your life. And when a name comes up or somebody like that appears in your life and reminds you of that uncle, brother, whatever, you get real angry. Your teeth want to grit. 
You don't want anything to do with them. They haven't said a word to you, but you've already... The feeling comes up. It makes you standoffish and difficult. And every Christian thing you've been taught about how that's wrong, like in Ephesians 3, let all bitterness and wrath and clamor be removed from you. Because uh-uh. I've been hurt, and I'd love to hurt somebody back. I would love to get even. I'd like to wind up on somebody and, and wear them out like they wore me out. You know what? And given the chance, you'll talk about that to somebody. And when you talk to them about it, all your bitter past will come out. You'll come out in hate and anger and I wish and I can't stand him. When we talk like that, there's bitterness in us. Oh, I can't stand him. Oh, he, she, oh she thinks she's hot stuff. There's something wrong with you. If you're a Christian, you're not permitted to talk like that. Now, you may not be perfect yet, and you have to get convicted about that and overcome it, but there's too many people that 30 years later are bitter. They're bitter. It's an accident. Somebody was hurt. Somebody was killed. The insurance company wouldn't pay for it. The hospital didn't do a very good job. Doctor made a mistake. Somebody's impaired. Now, you got a problem the rest of your life, or you are a problem. You're bitter. One man I knew, their father died, he said, because the Red Cross did not do something or the other. He said, I can't forgive him for that. You know, that the very bottom of your bitterness is probably unforgiveness. Your wife left you. Left you with four kids. Ran off with your best man. Or ran off with a preacher. You heard that one. All right, then ran off with a deacon. But left you standing, treated you like a dog. All that time you spent fixing and washing and cleaning and helping and raising this man's kid, and all of a sudden, he's gone. And you hope that he, and you hope that, and I wish, and if I could, oh, if I can get him in court, I will remove him. You're hot. You're bitter. And everybody says it's okay to be bitter about that. Four kids and your wife left you? Do it the other way a while. Your wife left you with four kids? What are you going to do with them? Man, I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. If I ever run into her, let me tell you, if I ever run into her, and then all that. You know what? Do you believe the devil can put that seed in the ground that becomes a root? And it controls you. All somebody needs to do to ruin your day is mention somebody's name and you're in a bad day right away. It all comes to the surface. You know why? Because you're full of hate. You're full of hate. You have ill will towards somebody. You want to see somebody suffer like you did, and so you really hope they get what they deserve. You said that because of bitterness. Something inside of you that just rises up. Oh, you can, oh, I know I shouldn't do it. I heard that message this morning. I'm so sorry I do that. You know, you can yank the top off of it, but it'll come back until you get down there and start digging around. There's a little tool I have. Boy, weeds hate it. Little tool's got a little, the bottom of it's spayed out like that and got a little V in the middle of it. Play like you know what this is. And you can dig that thing down the ground and get under root, 
give it one of them. And <laughs> what about that, boy? And out and they go in the yard. You got to do that in your own life. Do you suppose all of us have come to the Lord without a problem? Do you suppose everybody in here has never had a problem with somebody? What about that girl you broke up with? You're still mad at her. You hope she's never happy. You've got a problem. It's not just a casual little problem you can walk away with and play checkers with. This is a real problem. What did he end of this verse saying? It can defile you. Do you suppose heaven is a place where <laughs> bitter people can go to the gates of heaven? Well, I'm here. Is, is he up here? <laughs> did she make it? <laughs> it won't be like that. It won't be like that. It won't be like that. I've never had some things done to me. I grew up in a divorced home and saw other men in the house. I know what kind of stuff was in my mind growing up, and I know what the word hate means. I used it before until one day by a revelation, a gift of, of the Spirit at a camp down in uh, western Kentucky. A lady from Tennessee told me I need to go home and tell my mother that I forgive her for this or that. Well, I didn't want to act like I had a problem. My mom, you know, she's my mother. I don't care who she is. You held a lot of things against her. It was because of her. You thought your daddy wasn't around your house anymore. Your daddy had to leave. You wanted to go with your daddy. Remember the day the sheriff came, took him away, and you wanted to leave with him? He said, you can't go. You got to stay here with your mother. Remember that? I don't want to think about it. But you got to think about it. You can't hide this stuff in your life. You either deal with it or you die with it. You deal with it and quit being afraid to talk about it. You got a problem. Talk about it. Deal with it. It's the devil. And you deal with it. And I did. I went home, told her I was sorry. She cried and I... Uh, something lifted. The root. I no longer had that. I was now able to see from her side more than I had ever looked at before. I gave her the benefit of the doubt. What if it had been me? What would you have done? And then that changes everything. All of us in this room have been damaged by somebody, maybe a whole lot, and it's hard to not forget it, or a little bit, and again, just a breakup. Somebody stole your lunch money at school, stole your bicycle. Somebody stole your car. Somebody did this, somebody did that. You weren't voted for. I was the most popular one. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, I came in second in most popular one. And the guy that won, I think, was vote counter. I think he fudged. <laughs> Poor Tommy. No, sir, I look back at all that stuff now because I, I see things now that I couldn't see before. We have got as Christians, the world doesn't care if we do it or not. The world doesn't care a thing about this. It's just a psychological problem for the world. But for us as Christians, we got a problem.
You know what? You can be lazy. You can be lazy and become incompetent and not want to work and have some kind of idea. I don't want because your daddy was like that or your uncle was like that or somebody in your family was like that and you thought that was okay to be like. They went to church and somebody says, you know, you're lazy. I'm what? You're lazy. You can put them little things down. You're lazy. <laughs> you don't even try. And then you're hot. You're mad. Because you know what? The truth, it hurts. You got a bitterness in you. You know how you know you do? Because when you get a chance, you talk about the person that told you the truth about your life. The day my preacher a little preacher this big, I could have whooped him with one hand, told me one day that I was a crybaby. I didn't like that. I'm the basketball coach. You understand? <laughs> I'm in pretty good shape. I'm still 30 years. I'm, 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 don't call me a baby. I wanted to get out of there and say, who's he think he is? Let me tell you something about it. See, that's how bitterness begins. That's how it starts. Just a devil in a confrontation of some sort or a bitter experience, he doesn't want you to forget it. You know what I had to do with Brother John? That was his name, my pastor. I had to admit, you know, John, next day, you're right, I am a baby. I would have never repented of this action if you had never told me. Now, I've had to be told 15 times since then. I've had to do it 15 more times. But, <laughs> well, my mother raised me like that. You've got to blame somebody. But a root of bitterness will damage your life forever. You do not have the luxury of hate, ill will, unforgiveness against anybody. You were denied a job. You were termed unacceptable. You didn't get the scholarship because of your religion, and you were hot. Well, what should a Christian do? Well, I'll ask you the question, what should a Christian do? What if they took your son? What if a mob took your son and beat him and mocked him and put him on a cross and spat on him and called him real bad names and took his last piece of clothing. That's your son. What would you feel about all these people that did that to him? What would you think as a mother? You know what he said? You know what the son said? Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is the truth. All these ugly and vile things that have happened to all of us would have never happened if the people who did them had known Jesus. Amen. We wouldn't have this conversation. If they had known Jesus, they wouldn't have killed him. That uncle wouldn't have molested you. That boy wouldn't have raped you if he had known Jesus. You wouldn't have scarred that girl in the backseat of that car, all the things you tried to do, if you had known Jesus. Oh, I go to church. I don't care where you go. You don't know him. A man who knows Jesus doesn't do that, doesn't try to do that, doesn't think like that. And when something happens, we have to learn, folks, to forgive. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. 
we have to learn to forgive because if we don't forgive, that thing sets in us and sees. And the reason we yak about certain people, the reason you keep telling the story about how wounded you were is because you have a root of bitterness. Somebody that I know has a root of bitterness. Deep down inside, they cannot get over it. They could. They just don't want to. They leave that thing in there, and anybody that will listen to it, they go into specific details about what somebody did to them in their life and how they tried so hard to do what's right. And, and they might have been right. I'm not saying that. But they get to the place where they can't get over it. They live in bitterness. It comes out in conversations. Somebody else had a similar situation. They start telling their story all over again. They tell that story many times every year to whoever will listen because they want somebody to stand with them in my bitterness. And it never goes away. And all your hymns singing, all your church going never takes it away. It doesn't go because you go to church. It doesn't go because you went forward. That root doesn't leave because you married a good man or good woman. It leaves because you deal with it. You have got to deal with roots of bitterness. I don't care if they had an affair or you've been left behind or divorced or whatever has happened to you. You've got to forgive. If you cannot forgive, folks, you cannot make it. Matthew 18, the last verse. It just won't work. Now go back to our verse here. And it says in verse 15, this root of bitterness, this root of bitterness, it says, springs up. It springs up. It springs up. And it troubles you. It becomes a difficult, nagging thing. It shouldn't be, but it is, because you let it be. It's in there. Turn to Deuteronomy 29. You see, this is the description that goes with bitterness in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29. I mentioned this earlier that our verse, verse 15 in Hebrews 12, came from here, Deuteronomy 29, and verse 17 and 18. Well, let me get verse 16. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the, the nations which you passed by, and you have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them, that would be like the United States. Verse 18, lest, listen to this, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. That's how God sees the activity of those who reject his way and reject his word. That's how he sees it. You are not a savory, spicy flavor. You're not a good thing to me. You're like gall and wormwood. It's an abomination. You're like poison. Who can stomach that? But he said, this is like 
chapter 32 and verse 32. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their vine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asp. This is sort of the bigger picture of the word bitter, bitterness. Like I say, it could be in scope applying to a nation or a group of people that are affected. Remember the verse in the New Testament? It's in the book of Acts. It talks about those who spread gossip in the church. He said the poison of asp is in their tongue because the stuff they're saying, gossip, is like poison. It draws you away from forgiveness and concentrating on the Lord because now you're thinking about how ugly or bad somebody was because somebody told you about it. Somebody had to share gossip and ugliness. And that person's life, instead of being that wonderful thing that heaven will be waiting for to get, it's like gall and wormwood. You're an abomination. It's not good. And it shows up. People talk. People are upset. People reject people. We don't like that. We don't want to sit with this one. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We want to be divisive. In the early church, in 1 Corinthians 11, this one came, this group sat over here, this group sat over here. In a big city, they didn't have a building where they all met. They didn't have church buildings then. They met in homes. They had elders or leaders in each home. And all these leaders would bring their little house group together. When the apostles would come through town, it would be a big gathering, a lot of pastors, a lot of elders, and a lot of people, they'd come together, and he would talk to them. But when they had their agape feast, some were over there, some were over here, some here. They didn't share their food, didn't care about that group. Who knows? They weren't interested. They probably talked about, well, if they had any faith, they, would, you know, they wouldn't be like that. Well, I, you know, I tried to help them one time. They just don't. That's not good. That's not good. Do you suppose in this life somebody's going to reject you? Do you suppose somebody's ever going to put you down unrighteously? You suppose you'll ever be slandered and talked about? Oh, he thinks he's hot stuff. Actually, he doesn't. He thinks he's pretty cold stuff. His manner may look like he's hot stuff, but deep inside, the truth be known, uh, he's not much. But you don't want to say, oh, no, he's not much. He's humble. Well, nobody likes to hear that. You can't revile that. Oh, he's a humble, loving soul. Who wants to revile that? Oh, he's a God-fearing man. She loves the Lord, and they're just good people. Well, I don't hear that. Give me something juicy so I can justify why I don't agree with them. It might be a root of bitterness. It might be a root of bitterness. And this thing springs up. Let me close with this word, defiled. Because our verse of Scripture, back where we were, says this root of bitterness the effect it has on you when you allow it to seethe and manifest itself and never get dealt with, it defiles you. It doesn't have to. It's not supposed to. But it can. Just like grace is not supposed to fail, is it? Grace is not to be frustrated. 
Grace is never to be set aside. That's how we're led. We're led by grace. Grace teaches us to deny this. Grace is a wonderful subject, but the Bible says you can frustrate it. God ain't going to make you serve him. If he was going to make you serve him, he wouldn't judge you for disobedience. It'd be his fault. But he shows you the way. Didn't he say this is the way? Walk ye in it. Didn't he say that? What does the Lord require of you? He expects you to do certain things. So if you want to be defiled, just reject what God has said. Hold on to your feelings and all of that. And let defiling, it's a process, and let it just take place. It means to stain, like to stain glass. It just slowly processes. It begins to be more and more evident. It begins to swirl and discolor. And thus the word would mean to pollute, corrupt, or defile. That's what happens to us. While we're religious, while we maintain our Christian ways, so I want to close this morning with one more verse, but I'm going to ask you a question. Can we be a Christian and live defiled? Well, it depends on how you define things, I know. But can we call ourselves Christian and live defiled? You can call yourself whatever you want to and live defiled. You can say, I believe God. I even believe the cover is genuine leather. That doesn't mean you believe it, does it? In fact, you could, saying all that, be a deacon, a leader in the church, and you can set aside all these demanding things that God says. You can set all of that aside because everybody does. You can set it aside and say, I don't know about all that. I didn't come to church to hear that. Are you defiled? Is that what he's talking about? Are we ever maybe bitter against the Lord for requiring so much of us? Look what I gave up and nothing's going on good. But they said in Psalm 73, what good is it to serve the Lord? You know, look at the, the wicked, how rich and well to do they are. They're all fat. They live long. They got everything they want. And here we are struggling and barely making it through life. Oh, but we're the Lord's people. They're a little bitter. I heard that message, that stuff, you know, I, I believed all that once. You're bitter. You're bitter. You're blaming God for your problems. Bitter. Turn to last verse, Titus. A man who is defiled is a man who has become dirty and corrupt. Maybe religious, maybe a preacher may have rejected half of what God ever said. Didn't Jesus say to the Pharisees, he said, you've done this and you've done this and omitted the weightier matters of the law? Is that possible that we could have some kind of a glorious appearance and hallelujah and yet omit, leave out, not want to talk about some of the deeper things of God that convict us? Because we don't want to see people go through conviction. They might not come back. You can go to a thousand places. You'll never get convicted. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why the, the worst judgment is going to come on preachers. The worst judgment. You give them a word, you tell them. But Lord, they might leave. You tell them what I said. Their being here and their leaving is my business, not yours. I didn't call you to build a church. 
Jesus is the one who builds the church. Well, I'm not qualified, neither was Peter. Titus 1. Are you there? Now, these are religious people, but this is a picture. This is a picture of defiled people. This is what a defiled soul, how they are described. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. Isn't that something? They don't get bothered by anything anymore. They're set. They're set in death. You're not going to say anything to change their way. I was born like this and this is the truth. I am never going to change because you're set. And he said, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving will not. The word means the refusal to be persuaded. I will not. He said, unto them, he said, even their mind and their conscience is defiled. But notice verse 16. This in the church. It's the church crowd. They profess to know God. The word know would be a nice word for a Bible study, what the word means. No is not an acquaintance. It's no is a relationship by which you learn about a person. You introduce yourself to somebody. You don't know them. You know who they are. You don't know them. Hang around them, spend a little time with them, you begin to know them. You married boys think you're all going to know, you know, girls and boys. You think you know your wife. You won't know her half as well as you do after you marry her, obviously. But he said they profess, they say with their mouth, they know God. But notice these are hard words. They profess to know God, but in works, in how they live, what they do, and what they say, they deny him. But that's not what he wants you to say or how he wants you to say it. That's not what he wants you to do or what you should be doing. That's not the way you should live, the way you're living. Now, they justify it because they've already denied the Lord. They've already set aside things that we've dealt with their life. They've kept it from you. Like he said about the Pharisees, they not only won't go in themselves, they keep you from going in. They make you twice as bad as they are. But that's what you get for sitting there. And so he said in verse 16, but in works they deny him. Notice three things, and we'll close. They deny him, one, being abominable, being disobedient, that's a refusal to believe, and in every good work, reprobate unacceptable, rejected, dismissed, no heaven. You know why? Because they made a personal choice. Somewhere in your church life, sometime in your life in church, when you, maybe when you're growing up, you're young like this bunch over here is, robust, you know, just loads of testosterone. <laughs> God interferes with your life. He wants you to live a certain way. This is the way he says walking in. But, man, how can you do all this other stuff that your buddies are doing if you do that? 
So you tend to set it aside because your friends say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for that. You know, I don't think I'm ready for that either. So you begin to set it aside and you push it over here. You go to church and you think, man, how much longer is he going to preach? I got to get out of here. He's killing me. The man's killing me. Call 911. And then one day you get a little older and all your dreams were not so dreamy after all. All your pursuits were not so good after all. All your opportunities turned into something else. Now you're trying to get a job making $5 an hour if you can. You're having too much fun to, like the Bible says, to make preparations in your life and to be diligent in this and do a good job. And next thing you know, your life is in a mess. And all these things that you wanted, you needed. Is it possible that in the last days that there will be a famine in the United States? Not of bread and water, not of food, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And who's to say, if we set it aside now, we're not ready for that, I don't want to hear that, who's to say it'll ever come back? Doesn't have to. I think the Bible still says this, call ye upon the Lord, what? While he's near. Does that mean he's not always near for you to call upon him? Right. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. You ever heard that song? Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. Well, that's not the Bible. We don't have to base anything on that song. But somebody that read the Bible must have got the information or the conviction for that song. Let me close with saying this. We are given a chance in this life to live now in a way that qualifies us to please God. You're also living in a wonder world. The exaggerated achievements and accomplishments and crazy people getting glory and people aspiring to look like this and act like this and go here and go there and do that. And the church is against the whole thing. And none of it out there is acceptable to us. You think, man, well, what are you going to do? You can't serve God and the world. You have to make a choice. You stand between two opinions. You're in the valley of decision. Some of you in here this morning, right now as I'm speaking, need to deal with some things in your life about bitterness. What somebody did, said, all of that, I've already said, you got to deal with it. But isn't God good to give you that as an opportunity? Father, in the name of Jesus, open our hearts and our eyes this morning the eyes of our hearts to be able to see what you're saying to understand it help us to take everything personal Lord you're not dealing with somebody else you're dealing with me my situation some of you that are sitting here right now or maybe watching this somewhere else you're aware of the wounds in your life the people that have hurt you, the people that got off scot-free and you suffered. And you're wounded and you're hurt. 
And you can't get over it or you haven't yet. And yet today, God called you here for you to know that he wants to help you find forgiveness and relief and deliverance from all these roots of sin because sin is indeed a deep root in people's lives. And if you'll make a decision this morning, if you'll just surrender your will and your heart to God in this special moment, God will help you get set free until the thing that used to plague you and bother you and control you is gone. You're free. Father, you know these hearts. I don't, I don't know any of them. You know them all. Nothing's hidden from you. You can see clearly what they're thinking right now, every one of us, at the same time. Oh, gracious God, have mercy upon us. Let your grace flow into us and set us free, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.